Hello again. I'm Michael Kuhl, and he is Roger Bell West. And this is Improvised Radio Theatre with Dice. We bring you this ex uh, summer exposition from the edge of Roger's swimming pool in the heart of sweltering uh, Buckinghamshire. We're not used to sweltering in Buckinghamshire. We're, we're, we're not very good at it. No, British, British people don't swelter. And uh, this... Uh, time we have for you. We have a game dragged from uh, from the back of Roger's game cupboard, which is Cyberpunk 2020. And we have more about how to be a better player, and more about uh, histories that didn't happen, and even more stuff. So let's begin. Now, a little while back, we were asked, "How can you be a good player?" as opposed to a good GM. I think a better player, assuming that people were good. Well, fair enough. And we answered that a little bit, but we, but we think there are more things to say about it. We also answered it a little bit too much from the point of view of the GM, didn't we? Let's be honest. Well, the GMs, would you? what do they expect, I think? Sympathy. Empathy. The thing that I would particularly add is, is to keep, keep it on the involvement thing. So when you are generating a character, mm -hmm. Yes, all right, Batman is cool, but a, a loner who doesn't really get on with other people isn't going to work well in a party. Justice League um, does have to go to certain considerable lengths to keep him involved in the plot line, it must be said. And the, the same in play, personalities, interactions. It, it's a matter of, rather than sitting there and waiting for the gym to entertain you, yeah. come up with things for, for, the, for your character to do, come up with ideas. Um, you know, they, they presumably have some sort of goals in life. Maybe they should work towards them, rather than just you know, getting rich, obviously. Powerful is good, too. Yeah. One of the things I would offer as a hint, and I don't know if it's going to be useful to anybody, is what I find from having worked as an actor, is that I need a focus um, for the character. What I normally go for is voice, um, by which I mean the tone, the manner, in which the uh, in which the character expresses itself. What we're doing has been described as, oh, by somebody I, 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 or other, but as improvised radio theatre with dice. Some guy. Some guy or other. I feel if you can speak as the character would speak under all circumstances, if you can maintain a, a constant tone, then you're doing a lot to build up the reality of the character, um, who probably doesn't look a hell of a lot like you. Um, in the minds of the of the, of the people around the table who are trying to interact with him. Our friends over at the Silver Lodge mentioned the idea of pinching a reasonably well-known actor, and if you happen to be very bad at doing impressions, people won't even know that you've pinched a reasonably well-known actor. <laughs> I would say I try to avoid doing um, extreme accents, um, except when I'm GMing. If I'm GMing, then you know a GMer it's fine if I can throw in the mad Scotsman, but... To maintain that throughout an e evening, um, uh, an accent too different from the ones I'm comfortable in is just asking for trouble. And besides, just like J John Cleese, all my accents tend to slide into high-pitched Welsh. Yes, I have one character who is aristocratic Spanish in a fantasy world, and I can keep up the accent, but it's really hard work. I liked your Russian in that uh, in that uh, Stargate game we were in. But the Russian is easy. Uh, yeah, you, you just have to wave your hands about a bit, and it, it, it all comes naturally. But yeah, if you can, if you can find something to focus the character on, not only uh, the verbal mannerism, but also 
personality trait. I'm afraid I tend to have a tendency to play good guys to the annoyance of my um, fellow players. Or at least I think of them as good guys, and they think of them as 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 rules obsessed uh, namby pambies. I, I strongly suspect <laughs> much of the time. But uh, but that, that's that's part of my philosophy of, uh, of of gaming. But find some find some focus. It's said that uh, Alec Guinness used to worry about what shoes his character was going to wear until he finally found the pair and then he could start building. But I don't think he can do that uh, in a role-playing game. I think I would say, don't be afraid of cliché. Mm -hmm. And yes, it can be overdone, but it's in, in a game, particularly if you're a sort of player who doesn't particularly put himself forward, it's much easier to underplay than to overplay. If you've got some sort of hook that you can use, it may seem trite, but at least give it a try. Just don't annoy the other players with it, and they'll tell you if you do. Yeah, the the thing is that all that all cliches could be made new if you start looking into the backstory, if you start exploring the character in depth. You'll find things behind them which makes them not quite a cliche. But for the start, for early days in any game, yeah, you want something boldly written and clearly and clearly understandable, something with ideas that the other players and the GM can hook onto. And just to slip into GM mode for a moment, this is something I try to do when I'm writing up characters for one-shot games. I've got five sentences to grab somebody's attention and say, this is who you are. Yeah. Every sentence, every word should be something that's helpful in play. Yeah. The, you need the elevator pitch. For, yeah. Especially well, for, for all, all, all sorts of, of gaming, but especially for convention play. And I think it does no harm if, even in an ongoing campaign, you are able to say perhaps to a new player, uh, or perhaps to everybody when, when you're bringing the character after the game started, hi, I'm Bob, I'm, I do this, I'm this sort of person. It's nice to be able to sum, sum somebody up, at least approximately. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm remembering a line of dialogue from one of my old games. I, I was introducing a new player, and I said, and this is Acorn, the miserable elf. And the, the character's player objected, he said, he's not miserable, he smiles at least twice a year. And somebody else said, whether he needs to or not. <laughs> Sorry. Um, but, but yeah, yes, good dialogue. Good dialogue, good dialogue um, is a sign of um, a good game, I think. If, the, if it flows backwards and forwards between the players, if they can um, keep up what's going on between their characters, um, then, then you're, you've got, got a game that's, start, that's starting to, to rock and roll. Yeah, for me, I think there there are really two phases of play. There is out of play, before play, when you're thinking about what is this person like? Um, what sort of person is this? It, it, it's going to blend into the game mechanics. Which skills am I going to push? Which advantages? Whatever. In play, to me, I'm, what I aim for is immersion. Mm. It doesn't always happen, but it's my yeah. general ideal situation. If, if I can talk in character without having to think about it, because I've internalised that character's yeah. mental state. That, that's really what I'm going for. Yeah, being there. Being there is, is the being out of yourself, um, being as much as your imagination will provide it in the, in the character and in the, the situation. There's a peculiar, it's a peculiar mental state um, that actors are trying to achieve all the time in which you're running on, on two levels, the practical level of... Um, where do I need to go next? Where do I need to pick up my next prop? And simultaneously, 
being there, being the character, manifesting the character fresh every time. It's in some ways it's easier in an improvised situation like um, like role playing games or Commedia dell'arte because you're not quite sure what's coming up next. You have standard routines and things that you know how to do, but you're always being surprised, and surprise makes you make fresh art. I'm wondering whether one might look at this in terms of the split between method acting and the Stanislavski approach, as in, I will think like the character, I will immerse myself, and the, I suppose one might call it a more Brechtian, we will break the fourth wall gratuitously, we will talk about the story that is going on around us and that we are part of. Um, I've never been sure that the distinction is, is terribly useful. Um, I'm not a trained actor. I wandered into the, into the profession um, from university, and uh, my, uh, my my lack of training may account for my current unemployment. Who knows? But I found that both, as I say, it needs you need a split uh, awareness, and it applies around the gaming table as well. You need awareness of all the finicky bits and rules, but you need at some level to be saying, "Here I am. I'm on this sled. I'm being chased by a demon." A multiple tentacle demon from from hell. I do not really trust the people uh, with me not to throw me overboard. How do you feel about that? Um, I feel a feel grip on my on, the, on my on my on my pistol at this moment. In time. <laughs> no, I, I'm I'm inclined to agree. I don't think an ex, either extreme is is ideal. Um, the, but yeah, for the moment, when you come up with the line, when you surprise yourself, you want the immersion. When you, when you find yourself um, saying things that are, are right, but you never thought of saying before you sat down around the table, um, then, then, you want, then you want to have um, subsumed all the mechanical bits and got them out of the way, uh, which is the process of learning the game in, um, in a role-playing game and, and rehearsing in the, in the theatre. Want to have, have all that sorted and out of the way, so that you are up and flying um, when you're when you're being the character. Yeah, um, this is probably going to sound fairly arty farty to a lot, a lot of listeners. I'm, I'm just thinking that quite a lot of authors of conventional fiction, not all of them, will recount a story roughly along the lines of "I was stuck with this particular bit, and then the character told me what he wanted to do next." Yeah. I think that's a similar process of internalisation. Um, there are some authors who think this is absolutely terrible, you should never let your characters do this. Mm-hmm. They tend not to be authors I like, but that may be a coincidence. Do you know the story Stephen Bruss tells? He says, uh, I heard him say this at a, a panel at a game convention, actually, that he used to go out every day when he was writing, sit down at his desk and say to his subconscious, show me the coolest thing that you've got. And then he sat down and started to write. He did this until he was writing one of the Dragaran um, stories about uh, Vlad Taltos. And he he wrote uh, in, way, way into this chapter, and, and then he realised the first sentence he had written was, we buried him by the side of the road. And he realised that by the time he got to the end of the first paragraph that he'd just killed off a major character <laughs> and wanted to know if he... And, and his conscious mind curled up with his subconscious and said, do you really want to do that? There are things to prevent um, role-playing games from doing this. 
But on the other hand, you would get a lot more cool gaming if, uh, if people did say that to themselves. It's the coolest thing I could do right now. On that theme, um, we've been look, looking at a book recently called Play Unsafe by Graham Walmsley, who certainly understands this story game stuff. He's done some very, very good work. Um, the most recent thing of his that I've been looking at is Cthulhu Dark. And I'm very fond of, uh, I think I may have mentioned, I'm very fond of uh, uh, Taste for Murder. Uh, Indeed. That's what it's called. Which is his, um, his recreation of Agatha Christie as, as, a, as a role-playing game. It seem, seems to me, his basic premise, and do, do correct me if I'm um, mis- misinterpreting it, is saying, use techniques from improvisational theatre in gaming. Yeah. Uh, specifically, um, pushing boundaries, if there is something that makes you uncomfortable, go, go ahead and explore it. And treat the whole process as play, mm. which one might characterise as make stuff up, rather than work, write stuff down, look yeah. it up and check it and so on. I think he's uh, definitely got some of the ideas of um, of impro, and he refers to uh, to books about about impro for uh, actors to use. But improvisation is a preparation tool in the theatre. It has to be different in role playing games a little, I think. In theatre, impro, you go up and you bring out stuff. You do exercises about various different situations and see if they echo with the work that you're, you're you're using but it's to be thrown away it's your rough notes it's stuff you're drawing on for later firmed up material but in role playing games the moment is all you've got you only have the one run through Yeah. one thing he actually mentions in the book is if things are going wrong you have the option of rewinding to a point you're happy with. This is technically true, but I, I at least always find this sort of thing terribly unsatisfying. I do it when I, as GM, have made an error. Indeed. But um, that, it, it's not a thing one wants to do. It, it's a backup yeah. option. To tell the story, oh, you could have a you could have a role-playing game in which you tell the same story over several different ways exploring. Mm. Write that down. That might come in. You know, the, the sliding doors, the role-playing game. Write that or, down. Or, or Rashomon. Oh. oh, that's that's even more complicated, and I'm never going to get to do that, but never mind. But you want you want to, there to be a firm sense of narrative. I don't know why, because we generally throw away the stories we, we, we come up with. Um, but we yes, want but it's gen- be- having been in a story, having been part of a story, to yeah. me at least, is, is a source of satisfaction. Yeah, he's uh, one could argue that the ultimate product of role playing game is is um, talk around the table later. Yeah, it, it's uh, it, it's. Uh, do you remember the time when? Um, I, I think that I, I've I've always felt that the, the the ultimate product of role playing game is the moment itself is is flying yeah. along and and everything everything uh, everything go, going fine and the, the the moment the dice fall or you you make 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 the the judgment call or. or the, the thing itself is its own reward, and the snapshots afterwards are about as satisfying as the snapshots of the holiday. Yeah. Certainly one of, one of my core ideas is everybody should be having fun. Yeah. And th- this is one of, the, one of my slight arguments with this book. He, he's describing these techniques, and it may just be because he's putting them across in a, in a reasonably assertive way, but it com- comes across to me a bit like one size fits all. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, if the players are having fun with what they're doing, 
Yeah. Then I'm, I'm I'm not going to, as a player or as a GM. I'm not going to tell them no. This is the wrong sort of fun. You should do this thing instead. Yeah. Sometimes I should say that, but I generally don't. Um, and he, he mentions things that make players uncomfortable. Well, maybe they make them uncomfortable for a reason. Uh, we're, we're not their therapists. Well, no, quite. Um, I don't think we can push. Yeah, negotiation beforehand, which makes which makes uh, role playing games sound like a sadomasochistic sex a little too much. But um, I think some, to... some negotiation is a very good thing. This is this is one of the points I do very much like in this book. Mm. Because in a conventional role-playing game, let, let us say a character has a family and the GM says, right, I'm going to take that away from him and, and see what that does. Maybe the player likes it, maybe he doesn't. If the player doesn't, then you've probably got an annoyed player who's going to walk away. Yeah. If there is a social context in which the GM can say to the player, are you up for this? Mm. Then you, you've got some degree of making sense. At one point he puts forward this, uh, an idea he posted on the internet forum. A thief moves in to, uh, across the rooftops, keeping to the shadows. He creeps in, uh, to a window, reaches through and opens it. He sees a woman, and behind her, something shining on a desk. And he posed to his uh, internet interlocutors. One, what do you naturally expect will happen next in the story? Two, what would you like to happen next? Three, what is the coolest, cleverest thing you can think of that think up to happen next? All, he says all the answers to one and two were in different ways and actual extensions of the story. Uh, the woman turns to the man and says, that's the noisiest break, breaking and entering I've ever heard. The thief dashes into hiding and continues to watch the woman as she gets ready for a magnificent ball. And then he says that the answers to number three were overblown and far too clever. Uh, from the waist down, her body consists of a dozen writhing tentacles tipped with ten-inch serrated spikes which tear him limb from limb. He laughs hysterically the whole time. And the next one mentions Bill Clinton and the cigar. But I couldn't help feeling, yeah, but those are different sorts of stories. Those are different. I would rather like to see the woman with the tentacles. I could, I could run games in which that is just the right thing to do. One, one of the things that he's talking about is using the play mindset rather than the work mindset. Now, it may just be that I'm a weirdo, but I don't really regard these as, as separated as he does. I, I think of them as mingled activities. Mm. Yes, all right, I am the sort of person who has enjoyed using Gerbs Bickle's design at the, the ideal you are, you, are, you are sad about this, I will tell you. But, if nobody else will, I will. But even if you do regard these as completely separate modes of thought, why are you throwing away half of what you can do Yeah. in order to give privilege to the other half? I mean, yes, it... If you want to say balance between the two, don't think purely in work mode. Fair enough. Mm. But I, I don't think throwing the work mode away entirely is helpful. I mean, all right, I possibly care more about consistency in, in my game settings than other people, but I think the players enjoy it. I think they like being able to say, oh, right, well, we're, we're in Naples. We can talk to that guy we met in Naples last time. Maybe he's still here. Or yeah. maybe, maybe he isn't, but at least we remember this. Here, here is a person we met. And whereas I sometimes have to remind it, be reminded there's a chap in Naples... For my World War Two game, I was encouraged by one of the players to put up a big list of NPCs. Yeah, it a... was hard work to get it going, but now it's there, and, and I can scan through that. No, it's a, it's a, an exercise that I should do more often, and I don't do nearly enough. I think it depends on tone. I think sometimes the most outrageous, ludicrous thing is what you want. 
and sometimes what you want is something that looks mundane and hints at things beneath the surface and sometimes you just want the boring everyday um, soap opera thing the person sitting at a at a table discussing how their aunt Bertie you know and I, th I think for me one of the answers to one of my answers to that um, thief across the rooftop situation would be well what sort of what sort of world is this what sort of game is this what what is the feel that we're trying for yeah what sort of thief is this all right I'm, I'm slipping back into GM mode there I, I want more information than is presented yeah um, but the thing is we don't start normally we don't start role-playing games in the same sort of anything-can-happen state as in uh, most impro exercises. At least for me, if, if I'm starting to run or play a new game, there has been some negotiation. The group has got together towards mm. the end of the previous campaign, saying, right, what are we going to play next? Who's going to run it? What game system? What setting? And so on. By the time we get to generating characters, we already know, okay, this is a modern game of occult investigation, that this is a far-future game of, of soldiers in space, whatever. Well, the... The most, even the most free-form role-playing game I know, which is which I run, which is Over the Edge, even that has a, a default tone. I've thrown everything in in there from from Alistair Crowley to uh, to the Priest Kings of Gore into my uh, into into my Over the Edge games, and um, once had this fascinating chat with Merlin about his sex life. But uh, but there's still a default tone um, to it, which you can use to to, to delimit the, the possible responses. I don't know. It's a it's a good book. Um, I, I recommend everybody. Um, yes, it is an interesting book. Um, I and another thing that I do like about it, and it, it's advice you'll find in a lot of places, but it's laid out quite well here. It's the whole avoid negation thing. Instead of saying no, that doesn't work, try to come up with a way of saying. Yeah, all right, but yeah, that's not again. It's not a universal solution. That there are times when you simply want to say, okay, the bad guy's defences really are that good. You're you're not going to defeat him by go, by going up against his castle and banging on the door. You you need to be subtle about it. But so it, it's it's still a useful thing. I mean, particularly if it's player to player, it's nice to be able to say, all right, that happens. I'm not going to just say it doesn't. Yeah. But I'm going to react to it and then go on to the next thing, and somebody else can react to that. I think that uh, I, actually, I think I think that, that that a lot of the time you've got to say uh, make use of the GM's most powerful tool, which is to say, "Are you sure you really want to do that?" <laughs> I've never quite understood. Some players have a different understanding of what games are like. I've never really enjoyed players who assume they're always going to succeed. Their characters are always going to succeed and they can do anything they like and nothing matters. I think that this is the same thing that, that I like to look for in fiction. Yes, alright, I'm, I'm pretty sure the good guy's going to win, but I don't know how they're going to win, I don't know what it's going to cost them. Mm. The, more to the point, they, the characters, don't know they're going to win. Yeah, but the, the, there are players who assume that your generosity is going to mean that somehow you're going to find a way around for them to survive, even if they do the stupidest things on earth. These players need to play more Call of Cthulhu. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we may have wandered off the point here, here a little. There is, um, well, I'm going to talk about um, this um, a bit later, um, Feng Shui. Um, Feng Shui is a game where 
Yeah, get yourself again, hitching yourself underneath the, uh, the enemy's Maserati and allowing yourself to be dragged through the streets of Hong Kong, or just walking up to the doors of the Super Bowl and allowing yourself to be captured, is actually sometimes a sensible move. But it's rather a specialised um, setting to begin with. Yeah, I, I think look, looking at that sort of play, I, I think one has to say, one has to take it seriously. Yeah. All right, there's a rule I will I will I will I will offer to any, any player. Take the settings and the, and uh, uh, as seriously as your character would take it, not as seriously as you take it. Take yeah. it take it as as seriously as somebody involved in that world is going to is going is going to treat it, and um, and that that's the first step towards. Yes, you're safe here, sitting around the table with your friends and, and popping um, cheesy watsits down your throat. But um, be as concerned as your character would be for his survival and the survival of his world. Yes. Yep, I, I think that's entirely reasonable. And just, again, looking at stories, you you, you may well have, have the uh, hero quipping about things, but he doesn't assume that everything will work out alright because he's the hero that sort of narrative awareness is, is it's fairly specialised and to my mind doesn't really usually work very well yeah choose your next criticism carefully Mr. this next section is kind of called Out of the Cupboard in which we are digging into our quite extensive libraries oh dear you depress me almost as much looking up your shelves, Roger, as, as it does looking at mine. I have three separate editions of Battle Lords of the 23rd Century. That is not something you want broadcast across the internet, Roger. Too late. <laughs> and we're bringing out uh, games that we have a lot of, but we haven't played in a while, and talking about them. And Roger's going to start with a game called Cyberpunk. Specifically Cyberpunk 2020, the role-playing game of the dark future. Oh, God, dark futures. Got a mutter during this. <laughs> Came out in 1990. It is actually the second edition of Cyberpunk, but very few people uh, actually saw the first edition. I'm one of them. It was a bit of a false start, and the, this corrects a lot of the things that are wrong with it. The first edition was actually set in 2013, but we don't talk about that now. <laughs> and we won't talk about 2020 when we when we get there, if we do. So this is a um, little over 200 pages. It was expanded slightly later editions, and. It is pretty much a complete game in one book, though, of course, there, there were lots of supplements later. Uh, we have a terrible habit, all of us. So, v very roughly, going going through the book, you've got character generation and skills, you've got lots of equipment, you've got cybernetic parts, classed separately, you've got a combat system, you've got healing and general surgical messing about, and drugs and so on, you've got net running, because every cyberpunk game has to have net running, even if it makes no sense. And you've got world background, GM notes, and generally stuff on running the game. So you know, the, the, pretty much everything that's, that, that should be in there is, is there. The later editions added a lot more uh, background material and flavour text. All right, so you played this uh, back in the day. What was good about it? Well, it's, it's a quick, simple system. Uh -huh. It's start, starting off with the, the ethos that life is cheap, because it's, it's a dark future after all. Yeah. Um, character generation is, is pretty fast. Uh, if, if you lose a PC in play, you can be up and running again you know, within half an hour or so without too much trouble. Mm -hmm. It's not as quick as it might be, but it's not bad. 
one of the very good things about the character generation is its life path. Yeah. Which is basically a, a series of random events that you that you normally roll for. Yeah. And then Think, th- things that happened as you were growing up. So it's things like what what sort of childhood did you have? Did something bad happen? If so, what was it? As in, there was a false accusation of something. That yeah. there is, generally speaking, not much in the way of game effect from these. Though, though some. So of this is purely something. backstory. Yeah, it, it's what what sort of thing made you the person you are today? And so, sometimes, yes, they're quite big. You know, you you, you will lo- lose a point of uh, a, a key stat, and these stats are only on a scale of one to ten. Mm. Or you can be owed a favour by um, somebody powerful. Or something like that. But mostly speaking, it's here is something that's happened. Uh, here is how you feel about it. But it, it it's non-mechanical characterization. Yeah. And it it's been done since in other games. This was the first one in which I saw it, and I think it does work pretty well. well I, you could say that it's implicit in um, Traveller, uh, in 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 early Traveller, that all of the the life path pre- previous experience springs from. Yeah, though really what you tend to get in there is, the, in the, in this four-year block, I learned how to fly a spaceship, I nearly died. Hey. <laughs> uh, whereas in this you, you might have, um, uh, I had a great love affair, but she died. Committed suicide. Don't know why, but that's for the, that's for the player to fill in. Right. Uh, it doesn't always come out in play, um, partly because there isn't really much mechanical integration. It doesn't, doesn't really... Um, have any direct effects, but but um, for, for it, it's a good way for a player to get a handle on the, uh, on the sort of character. Uh, the, the the most bloated example of that was um, the the casting. What was it called? Central casting. Central casting. I was going to say casting couch, but that's wrong. Um, <laughs> things by Paul Jackwees, which carried that to a, to a bloated extent. All right. So, am I right in saying that cyberpunk all the all this whole cyberpunk ethos? is pushing the 1930s noir into the future. That's not the only influence, but it's certainly a big part of it, yes. The general sensation, uh, the general approach, I think, is that... It's a miserable world. You're street-level scum. Yeah, that's true. You're, you're wondering where the next meal's going to come from. You have to take all sorts of dubious jobs yeah. in, in order to get that next meal. And there, there are people who are way, way more powerful than you who can crush you like a bug if you come to their attention. And this is fun, is it? Well... Yes, actually. <laughs> all right, all right. You have to be sneaky about it. Game mechanics. You've basically got a skill in the range 1 to 10, a stat in the range 1 to 10, and add a d10 to it yeah. against a target number. No criticals or fumbles. It is, to my taste, a little too random, but that basically it, it, it's fairly blunt. You know, you, you can have a 0% chance of doing something or a 10% chance of doing it, mm. but that's it. There is the wonderfully named persuasion, lie, and fast talk skill. All at once. It, it's a single do stuff interpersonally other than seduce people skill. All right, okay. Characters are sort of semi-class based. It's a bit like Call of Cthulhu mm-hmm. in in that you pick a profession. And you get the experience from the profession. You, you get a, a list of skills that go with it. Yeah. Into which you can put a whole lot more points than you have to spend on other general skills. Also, each class has a special ability which only that class can learn. Mm-hmm. Which is things like being a really competent techie or persuading a crowd if if you're a charismatic. Mm-hmm. Um, musician type, or that sort of thing. Unfortunately, this is this is where the clunkiness of mechanics starts to show a bit, because there are two different currencies. When you're buying them during character generation, yeah. you've got a number of points. Four points gets you level four. Yeah. When you're buying them afterwards with experience points, it's arithmetically increasing cost. So uh, four points takes you from level three to level four, then five more points takes you to level five. Yeah, I, I, I have seen that happen, and I'm always wondering why systems do that. 
I, I really want there to be one unified way of improving the character, the way GURPS does it. Um, but some people seem to find this... Um, well, it slows things down if you're doing everything arithmetically, but then why aren't you doing it that way to start off with? Yeah, and what the particularly pathological end of this is that your level in your special class ability yeah. also determines your starting cash. Um... So there's always a temptation to specialise in that plus a few other key skills. Yeah. And say, I'm, I'm really good at this stuff, but that doesn't really leave you anywhere to get better later. You can you can spread out and learn more stuff, but you, you can't get better at your core thing than you were as a starting character. That's... Well, it helps protect... It's a, it's a niche protection thing, I suppose. Uh, but on the other hand, um, it does seem a little unbalanced. Uh, all right. So, you mentioned the net. What's it like in this version? Are we all William Gibson and, 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 and artificial reality, or what are we in? Yes, the, the, this is the virtual reality system. Are we sticking things into our brains? Here? Absolutely. Oh, good grief. It is somewhat improved from the first edition, yeah. in which the player could decide what his virtual reality looks like. The, the justification for this was you, you are trying to uh, use human instincts as... as to, to boost your reaction speed when something nasty happens. So 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 an, an attack program will look like, for example, a vicious dog. Yeah. Because you, you will then twitch away from it and this, this will trigger something useful. Why you need a human in the loop is never really explored, but hey, it's a genre convention. Yeah. In, in this, they, they dumped that, thank goodness, because it meant every program had to have at least three descriptions and, and a smart player would, would come up with something different anyway. And it's all very much your uh, Gibsonian cyberspace. Yeah only written by people who knew a little bit more about computers, they're still not very much. Roger speaks here as a professional. I had an absolute rule I would not play a Netron, I would not talk about computing when there was a Netroner in play, because it just it's just not worth it. Oh. The, the, these are not the computers we know, they work differently. But anyway, you know, basically it, it's a whole bunch of stuff. You've, you've got your um, hardware to connect to the net, you've, you've got a bunch of programs you can run on it, one of the classic problems, and this was a game that very much showed it, is that when you've got somebody trying to do an intrusion, mm. the game stops, and and it's a one-on-one yeah. between him and the GM. Smart GMs tended to say, okay, it's not really about that particular intrusion, it's about taking a leaf from Neuromancer. You've got the guy in the net who is working on the security system, opening doors, disabling security cameras, while other people charge through the facility yeah. and break things. That that is the way to do it. Except that sometimes that's not the sensible thing to do. Sometimes the sensible thing to do is sit down outside the uh, uh, the baddie's stronghold and let the net, the net runner steal all the secrets, um, or just turn the air supply off. Yeah, this was the game that introduced the idea of humanity cost. Ah, I was wondering where that came from. It, it basically, each bit of metal you get installed in your body, yeah, makes you a little bit less human. So if I, I I have a pacemaker, I'm somehow less human. Only a trivial amount. Uh -huh. And and your robot overlords will will of course uh, t count this in your favour. Oh, thank you. And um, if by some uh, for some reasons I I have a, I I lose a toe and have it replaced with with a mechanical equivalent, uh, this somehow stains my uh, my my soul. Not not that so much. That that was Shadowrun. Oh right. Where where, it, where having cybernetics impaired your ability to do magic. Um, All right. And if you had too many of them, you, you would simply die for no apparent reason. 
But in this, each thing you get installed makes you a little bit less human until you become an NPC loony. Again, it's very cool of Cthulhu, as you run out of sanity points. Yeah. Oh, right. So, so, well, so there is a small chance, if we give you an artificial arm, you would in fact become a psychopath. But the, 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 the evidence is, 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 is very rare. We count this as a very rare side effect. Yes. Um, okay, I can't see. I can't. Well, this is of course the, the the dark future where they don't explain to you the side effects before they sell you the uh, artificial arm. Indeed, it's an obvious game balancing mechanism. It doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense, but one one can live with it. There, there was a slightly munchkin side effect in that mm. your humanity loss came off one of your stats called empathy, which was basically um, your interpersonal receptiveness uh -huh. uh, it, it, it's the thing you use for understanding how people think for tr trying to work out a good piece of propaganda because you have to understand how people are going to yeah. receive it uh, it's, it's the one you use for writing poetry uh -huh. that, that sort of thing so obviously if you're going to have a lot of cybernetics you maximize that stat as opposed to say hey i'm going to lose it anyway um oh i don't know the, the number of points you have before you go mad goes yeah. up with the empathy stat fair enough Trouble is, I, I've seen this shtick. It got absorbed into the into the gaming culture, and I've seen people asking how I do um, cyber psychosis. How do I do cyber psychosis with GURPS and other such um, interesting assumptions in, in the past? I, I think it did. It became standardised. This was, I think, the first cyberpunk game. One, one can argue about the BTRC one, but this was certainly the first one that became uh, widely known. Yeah, and. A lot of other games simply copied it because it's such an obvious and useful game balance mechanism, even if it doesn't particularly make sense. And you, you, you don't want people to, to be able to replace everything and upgrade everything if they just have the money. Uh, this isn't something that, say, Transhuman Space or Eclipse Phase shies away from. Yes, but they, they, are, they are five and ten years later. Yeah, quite. I'm not, I'm not convinced about this. I, I, think, I think what it is is a shtick to make sure the world is miserable enough. And I'm really depressed by games that need sticks like that. My my problem with cyberpunk-style games is that, though they are based on the noir genre, there is very limited scope for um, doing the Philip Marlowe thing and being the man who down these mean streets must go who is not himself uh, tarnished or mean thing, because I like to play good guys. I think there's some scope for that. Um... So, some of that is is how the games were run, and I'm certainly uh, guilty of getting this wrong as much as anyone else. As I look at it now, a cyberpunk game should be about what compromises are you prepared to make to get what you want? Yeah. How much do you want it? How much do you care about the thing you might be giving up to get it? That that should be the constant thing in, in a PC's mind. And then armies, pretty much. Yeah, um, the same sort of idea without, without the um, magical side of things. It's not a game you've played for a while. Is it just that it is old, that uh, you haven't gone back to it, or has anything changed in you? That, uh... I, I find the system pretty clunky, mm. um, and I think quite a lot of people have simply stopped reading cyberpunk novels. There aren't that many of them being published anymore. True. And I've wanted to go into other things. I wouldn't mind giving it another go, though I, th I don't think I would use this system. Mm. And I would probably break the setting as well. But I, I wouldn't mind giving it another go at some point. And one of the things it was fairly uh, unusual for, at least in science fiction games, is, is that death is easy. Combat is deadly. The combat system was originally written to be a generic one for a, for a line of games that never really materialised because Cyberpunk was so successful they produced stuff for that instead. Yeah. But it was based 
at least in theory, on uh, real, real snaps of real gunfights. Hmm. So, generally speaking, you're at close range, you miss a lot, but if you get hit, it really hurts a lot. Yeah. One of the difficulties was that as, as uh, supplements came out, you, you got better able to hit, you got better able to resist damage, and, and the flavour of it shifted from fairly realistic, to as in I'm scared of that guy with a medium pistol, to it's pretty cinematic. I, I will I will I will dodge around even though I'm being fired at with an automatic weapon because I could probably take a hit or two and and still get to the guy in time. Hmm. Yeah, the uh, in all science fiction games, the infla- the the equipment, the inflation of cool new equipment, is always going to be a bit of a problem, especially uh, in commercially driven um, setting. Well, that's part of the problem. The games company has to keep producing stuff. Yeah. And, Whatever the stuff should be, and that that's quite arguable about it, has to keep producing something. And equipment was one of the very popular supplements. Mm. Some of the equipment was quite interesting. Uh, some of it was was munchkin bait. One of the classic things was making it cheaper in humanity cost to get cyberware if you paid vastly more money. Mm. There was a book which was basically about military vehicles. If you were running a military campaign, yeah, fair enough, that could have been quite useful. But there wasn't... I don't know anybody who ran a military campaign. But it, it means, hey, I can buy a tank now. The setting was originally the generic city. They called it Night City. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, they then expanded the, the world and then had to say, right, well, actually, it's in this particular place. It's a new development on the Californian coast because now we want to have stories where you can go to New York or San Francisco. Or... Yeah. So it's, it stopped being the generic city. Uh, it it gener- generally shifted also from a static world into, into the ongoing metaplot, which was a big thing in the, in the mid-90s. I remember metaplots. The uh, ultimate uh, end of this was was the Fourth Corporate War, which was never actually resolved because they didn't publish the final supplement. Probably just as well. And so, Cyberpunk 3, the next edition, which came out relatively recently, sort of resolves this, but it also goes into off into a very uh, Cory Doctorow, post-Cyberpunk, transhumanist sort of direction. I can't see the, 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 the fans of old-style cyberpunk being happy down and out of the Magic Kingdom. Yeah, and the, the later books had a nasty tendency to, to take the PCs for a ride on the Metaplot train. You know, Whatever the PCs do, this is going to happen, uh-huh. and this is going to happen, this particular guy is going to get killed. And, so and you can watch it happening. Yeah. Yeah, that is, uh, that, that is a, a, a basic problem with, met, with Metaplot, and probably something we should think about at another time. Uh, overall, I think it's it suffered really very badly from power creep. Mm. Um, as I as I look through the basic book for this, I see there's a lot of stuff in here about it being a street level game. Uh, where, where are you going to get the next meal from? There there are sidebars about um, talking about how you can be sneaky because you've you've got to um, go up against someone who's way tougher than you, and here's how you can yeah. uh, find out where they sleep and put a claymore mine under their bed or uh, hide in the middle of their biggest enemy's in base and that that sort of thing. The problem was that there was all this shiny tech. Players love going shopping. Mm. One of the things that I, I um, found out about when I, when I used to go to a Gen Con in the US was that Mike Pondsmith, the primary author, uh, got very annoyed with people playing his game wrong. And I suspect this is understandable to some extent because somebody would come up to him at Gen Con and let me tell you about my character. And he's got this and this and this and it's all great. I think he wanted a street-level game. Yeah. But the, the pressure of supplements and the, the general sense that players want to go shopping uh, worked against that. So in, instead of people who are scampering from one bad job to another, yeah. you've got people who are run, running their own reasonably um, effective and powerful organisations uh, who, who are deciding what jobs to take and turning down the ones that smell bad. 
and so on. Uh, the, the ultimate uh, ver version of this, as far as uh, Mike Bondsmith was concerned, was Cyber Generation, where he, he decided, right, I'm going to tell you how this game should be played and enforce it at the rules level. So the PCs are basically children go going up against the, the same um, heavily armed cyber goons as before. Unfortunately, the children have cool magical powers. I mean, cool nanotech powers. Yeah. And in, in the hands of a smart player, they can actually be way more terrifying than anything that ever showed up in Cyberpunk. <laughs> oh dear. And then this probably leads to games like Exalted, where you start out being a ludicrously powerful superhero and then just go on from there. That might be an indication of... Um, of people, uh, of people decide, deciding we'll solve the shopping and, and bloating problem right from the start. I'm not sure. I've never really understood Exalted that well. So as, as I look back on Cyberpunk, I, I've had some good times with it. I think if I were to run it now, I, I would um, try to focus very much on, on the mean streets and, and the compromises you're, you're making mm. as opposed to the big guns. Yeah, a, a game system that I am... Um, thing about taking back out from the cupboard is Feng Shui and, it's, uh, and it has a, a note from uh, the author saying we've given you all these details of the guns because some people like guns but it doesn't really matter I, and I feel that is the, the, the way to treat guns generally speaking yeah if you're hit it should hurt a lot mm. but um, who are we to talk we play GURPS a lot yep right. <laughs> well I think for now we will pause and go on to one more thing. section we return to counterfactuals to order. We return to uh, this segment where we offer to uh, make up new uh, timelines, new histories um, to order from our generous and eager um, customer base. Have our generous and eager customer base actually been in top contact on this topic? We haven't had any requests on this, but oh, I've, I've come up with one. All right, fair enough. So, I want a British Empire in the 21st century. So the UK actually controls multiple significant countries around the world. Uh -huh. It can be nice or nasty, can diverge whenever you like from the real world, but obviously the later the better. Alright, I'm going to pontificate a little. Um, empires, it seems to me, emerge from a differential in technology. As long as you have got the Gatling gun, and they have not, then you can go out and conquer them. And as long as they don't have the Gatling gun, or they have the Gatling gun, but you have the laser carbines, then you can um, maintain your empire. This is tricky, and there's a limit to which empires can expand, and that limit is the limit of communication. All right? Is this obvious? Fair enough. You can only control an empire as long as you can get messages back from the frontier to the centre about the trouble on the frontier in time for you to be able to send some troops to the frontier to do any damn good. And that is one of the things that broke up the 
British Empire, the other thing being the people who um, were being ruled uh, getting the Gatling gun or even slightly better the Americans would insist that their rifles were better than the gun less in the American Civil War but I'm not entirely sure that this is 100% um, a cause, I think the cause is more to do with the French coming in on their side so oh, to add to your store of useless information uh, it, the phrase the British Empire was made up by Dr John D. <laughs> <laughs> In a letter to uh, to uh, Queen Elizabeth about how it was perfectly all right for the English to go out and conquer the world because had King Arthur got himself made uh, emperor after all, honestly, it's all in Geoffrey of Monmouth. Well, true. So uh, the British Empire, having been made up to uh, give the Cecil family something to do, how do you maintain it? Well. Problem is, either you've got to increase the technological capability of the British, or you've got to make everybody else worse off. Well, I think I'm going to go in this particular case for making everybody else worse off. I think the only way I can see to do this is a fresh outbreak of um, bubonic plague crossing Europe at about the time the British Empire really starts going. I thought hard about improving our technology by making the um, Royal Society even more super duper at the need of technology than was, but I honestly don't I think it's a bit Mary Sueish. There, there's a campaign in which that's happening but it does involve magic. So Yeah, quite. I the, the, they, they were there at the forefront of being being supremely weird about uh, collecting all sorts of information right from the start and I don't think you can um, actually improve things, but if you can manage to kill the French off, largely, or the Spanish, the Spanish were never that much of a threat. But well, not not by this point, anyway. Yeah, but if you could get some sort of... Now, probably a couple of wars, you could extend it a little bit to make sure that uh, Britain remains a haven of peace whilst there, there are hideous um, dynastic wars going sweeping across the, the main part of the continent. The trouble is, the only way out at this moment in time I've got of preserving that particular British Empire is to make everybody else miserable, poorer, and slightly more dead. Is this the sort of thing you're looking for? I'm looking for it, whatever answer you come up with. Well, I don't know. Um, there is an alternative. That they'll be grateful to join the Empire, after all. Well, after all, yeah, would we want the French? Well, as long as they don't have to be too French about it. Well, quite. Um, I mean... Would we want the, the Spanish? The thing is, we would need to improve our technology, and I don't think there's any real way to do that. That's um, that's not just to to uh, give the player characters all the good luck. I do. It, it seems to me that if, if, as an empire, you're trying to conquer other what one might call industrialized countries, yeah, you need some sort of edge of beyond that beyond that tech. Yes, yeah, this is true, and there is a case to be said for uh, to be made made for preserving the the Commonwealth, but it requires levels of political wisdom and general all round sameness that just isn't going to come out of a bunch of uh, of, uh, of Puritans, I'm afraid. Not not uh, not at their first try, anyway. Unless unless the Quakers can can emerge early and and start in, infusing common sense into the English gene pool. They're very good at that. Yeah, well, they are. 
but it's just it's just not going to happen. My other alternative was to start earlier, um, to start in fact at oh, what's it called uh, the Synod of Whitby in the seventh century. For those who are not as familiar with uh, ecclesiastical history as I am, there was at this point uh, in Britain two churches. Um, the Celtic Church, which had survived um, in, the, uh, in the Celtic fringe, uh, the incursion of the pagan Saxons, Angles, Jutes, um, Vikings, and that lot. Um, which had maintained its own traditions, shape of the tonsure, date of Easter, um, having uh, unisex uh, monasteries, as I seem to recall, and a slightly more, a slightly greater um, sympathy for women. Um, and there was also the reintroduced Roman Church, which had started again at, at Canterbury by converting the Anglo Saxons. And at the Synod of Whitby in the 7th century, they got together and uh, tried to thrash out their differences. And in our so-called real universe, the Roman Church won. Hence the Pelagian heresy. Uh, the Pelagians were earlier, I think. All right, but but the, uh, the, a lot of them were, were still in the Celtic. Well, Church. yeah, the, the Pelagian, yeah. The Celtics were that... Um, look, honestly, listeners, you, you can look at the Pelagian heresy yourselves later. It's not really relevant. But anyway... The, the, the point being that if, let us say, they could not give up being Pelagian or um, having the wrong shape of tonsure or whatever else causes a schism, you could have the, um, uh, the Celtic Church continuing to dominate and, uh, let us say, unifying the uh, British Isles under one religious um, authority and chucking the damned Romans with their cardinals and what have you out. But one religious authority that is natively British. Yes. Now this, of course, leaves um, Britain um, separated from uh, most of the rest of Europe. There were British uh, missionaries going out and uh, converting uh, the Norse and uh, people like that at the time. And probably they could still get away with it. But it would um, find themselves isolated from the continent. I can see the, uh, the Celtic uh, church turning west instead and following the lead of Brendan the Navigator who was probably legendary but let's leave that out of it and going across the Atlantic and I can see the establishment of um, uh, a Celtic community on the far side of the Atlantic in the 7th century and maybe converting Iceland and Greenland at the same time um, and thus creating a new um, far spanning and far more interesting British Empire. It will not be an English British Empire because they will probably be the downtrodden lower classes, which, let me be frank, with somebody of Welsh ancestry, I'd be perfectly happy with. And so um, you can have um, a British Empire starting early enough, learning um, cross um, Atlantic um, navigation early enough, and if it has um, the same enthusiasm for learning and, and um, teaching as the Celtic uh, cultures normally have, perhaps outdoing um, the British Empire of our own timeline. Those are two alternatives that make everybody miserable but make the Celts happy. I like the second alternative. Isn't that against national principles or something? The national principles of the English, but we're ignoring you now. No, no, the Celts have to be miserable. They like it. We don't. 
very happy, happy, naturally happy people we are. Perhaps a little wet, but happy. You know, we are glad to be wet. The rain is good for you, Boyle, I tell you. What was I saying? Uh, a pleasant, pleasant thought on this hot day. Okay. So there you, there you are. And if you want still more uh, fantastic alternate histories, give us something to work with, um, our customers, our friends, our audience. Please. Speaking of something, giving us something to work with, we were speaking uh, last time, time before, about campaign design. We have um, listened to our own words and thought that we are perhaps being a little too general. And I at least design far more campaigns than I ever get to run. So, what we would like to throw into your laps again, um, hopefully for a better response than our counterfactuals have had so far, is the idea that we might design for you uh, one or two um, campaign briefings, at least proposals that could be put to, to players, and ideas. We'd, we'd like to uh, put them into um, the following categories. Uh, Roger is good on space. Generally tech, I would say. Uh, all right. Uh, futuristic science fiction, um, tech-based campaigns. I'm good on fantasy and magical-based um, games. And we can both do um, alternate histories um, and other stuff. What we would like is people to throw at us bits and pieces of elements that they'd like to see included in campaign outlines, things that they think are cool, that they think um, they might like to see in, um, in games. And we will pick them up. This is sort of iron chefish, except we're we're going to pick and choose the ideas we think are, are cool and combinable. But give give us some elements that you would like to see in in a campaign. Stuff the character types of characters, types of monsters, um, types of, of civilizations, and um, and weird stuff happening. You also do weird stuff if you want a weird campaign. Conspiracies, horror, that sort of thing. So thr thrust things at us, and we'll see what we can put together as a briefing, and we will discuss what we're working on here on the podcast. We hope that might be of some interest to you. And that's about it from the sweltering heat of Buckinghamshire. Uh, I have been Michael Kuehl, and he has been Roger Bell West. And we'd like you to send any and all comments and contributions to podcast at dekeli.ly. And we hope you have your sunscreen on and are wearing um, sensible clothes and a broad brimmed hat. Good day. Thank you.